Alcohol-related harms from at-risk drinking and alcohol use disorders rank third for burden of disease in Canada after hypertension and smoking. Yet, a few simple changes to our health care system would be required to improve the health of these patients and save health care dollars. I'm Dr. Diane Kalsall, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today we're speaking with Dr. Cheryl Spithoff, Addiction Medicine Specialist and Family Physician at Women's College Hospital in Toronto. Dr. Spithoff is the author of a commentary looking at how the Canadian health care system may be providing inadequate help for those with at-risk drinking and alcohol use disorders. Well, welcome, Dr. Spithoff. Thank you for joining me to talk about your commentary. In it, you want to draw attention to a group of patients who may have stable lives and few consequences from drinking at this time, but they are still at risk of harm and progression to more severe disease. Can you tell us a bit about these patients? When we think about people with alcohol problems, we typically think about people with severe problems, people who drink daily, heavily, people who've lost their jobs, lost relationships, have legal problems, um, the patients who end up with cirrhosis of the liver, pancreatitis. But this is actually only a small segment of those affected by alcohol and those at risk for harms. So most actually have stable lives. They're employed um, in relationships, have a home. Um, some are daily drinkers, but most are intermittent binge drinkers. So once or twice a month or once or twice a week, have four, five, six, or more drinks on occasion. Uh, most have not experienced significant consequences, so they typically don't view their alcohol as a, use as a problem. But this pattern of use actually does put them at risk of harms, particularly the short-term acute harms. So that's motor vehicle collisions, injuries from falls, from violence, other uh, mishaps. Uh, the studies actually find that about 20 to 40 percent of injuries, ones that are you know, severe enough to warrant a visit to the emergency department, have alcohol involved or implicated. What percentage of Canadians do you think fall into this category? Probably about 15 to 20 percent of people drink more than the low-risk drinking guidelines, but don't meet the criteria for an alcohol use disorder. So that's clinically significant impairment or distress from their alcohol use. So that's a very large group. It is. It really is. So with this the group this size, in your opinion, do patients with this kind of at-risk drinking or with alcohol use disorders have adequate access to treatment in our current healthcare system? No, unfortunately they don't. Um, there are effective treatments available for this group. Um, it's called a brief intervention. So it's a brief counseling session, five to 20 minutes long, given by a healthcare provider, like physician or nurse. Um, and they're actually really simple. Um, the providers don't need extensive additional training to give them. And they're surprisingly effective. So there's hundreds of studies that have been done on these brief interventions. There are several meta-analyses, meta including a, a Cochrane review, and they all show that it you know, reduces heavy drinking. And there's real-world cost-effectiveness to them as well, um, with studies finding about 4 to $5 saved for every dollar spent on implementing screening and brief intervention programs. But yet we're still not consistently doing them in Canada. Uh, when there's surveys done of physicians, this is mostly American data, but only about 30% of physicians are routinely asking about alcohol use. Um, Canadian data is limited. Uh, there was a recent analysis done in uh, Manitoba at six primary care clinics, and only about a quarter of the charts had alcohol use documented. So we're really not living up 
to this promise that this intervention has for these patients. So what are the changes that you'd like to see in the system to improve the situation? Well, there's a few different things. First of all, we need significantly increased amount of education in medical school and residency programs. Right now, the amount of hours dedicated to education on addictions or alcohol um, use disorders at risk drinking is significantly less than for any other chronic disease. Um, residency programs that train graduates to work in primary care settings like the emergency department or clinics, they should have additional requirements. They should ensure that trainees are able to screen and manage patients with at-risk drinking and more severe alcohol use disorders. So that means that they shouldn't just get lectures or information on this topic, but they actually should all get rotations in addiction medicine. Perhaps as the level of competence and confidence increases in family doctors in general, they can get this in their own family medicine rotations, but at first they probably need to get it through specific addiction medicine rotations. We also need more support for primary care providers who care for those with addictions. Um, It's fairly time um, intensive. They need additional training, CME sessions, Ontario right now is the only province that I'm aware of that provides additional funding through special billing codes for primary care providers to care for patients with addictions and alcohol use disorders, and this is important. Um, We also should be including first-line medications on the general public formulary. Most provinces right now um, require a special approval process that creates a barrier to patients accessing these medications, and studies show these medications are effective. They have no number needed to treat that's fairly low, around 12. They show cost effectiveness, yet very few Canadians are taking them. And then finally, primary care clinics and hospitals should be implementing processes to systematically screen everyone for alcohol problems who you know show up at the clinic or come through their emergency department, as well as have a pathway set up to connect these people to ongoing care. Now, you mentioned that um, additional education is required, and certainly for if that's implemented in the medical schools over time, you know, we'll hopefully get a cohort of emergency physicians and family physicians who will know how to do this. Mm -hmm. But for those who are already out there and practicing and maybe interested in implementing screening and brief intervention programs, how, how can they go about learning more about this? Um, So there's several different CME options. Um, There's uh, the CSEM, which is the Canadian Society of Addiction Medicine. They offer a fundamentals course in in addictions every year. The large um, family medicine conferences like FMF often have different CME events. Additionally, there's online resources that physicians and other practitioners can look at. The Canadian Centre for Substance Abuse has a lot of online resources around screening and providing brief interventions to patients. Um, There's American sites as well. NIAAA has a lot of um, information on different screening tests, interventions, medications, things like that. CAMH also has information online. So do you think clinicians need to take some kind of formal course or do you think that sort of the CME type programs would be um, enough? Because you're really calling for all family physicians and emergency physicians to know about this. I think that if someone is is motivated and interested, probably reading these documents, making an effort to implement them, looking at their practice, auditing it, seeing if, if it's happening is probably sufficient. It can be difficult, though, to make those practice changes. So we at Women's College are actually looking into models to get family doctors more comfortable 
and one that we're looking at is shared care. And that has some support for it in the literature. So basically an addiction medicine physician goes out to a primary care clinic, sees patients, but also does a lot of case discussion, mentoring, and provides education to the family physician. So that's another option that is probably more effective looking at the literature on practice changes. So I guess one of the first steps, though, as you've said, is for people, for physicians to recognize that patients have it, to do some screening. Yes. Um, so do you have any recommendations for screening tools that physicians should consider? So there's several different um, screening tests out there. Um, probably the most commonly used one is the CAGE. Um, the CAGE questionnaire is very good at picking up patients who have an alcohol use disorder, more severe problems. However, it misses a lot of um, patients with at-risk drinking. So it's actually not one that we're recommending as a first-line screening test. So the option that I usually recommend to primary care providers is the single-item screener. So it's a single question. How many times in the last year have you had four or more for women and for men five or more drinks on one occasion? And once or more is considered a, a positive screen. It doesn't mean this person has at-risk drinking or an alcohol use disorder, but about 80% of the people that you pick up with that screening test do. And it has fairly um, decent sensitivity as well, picks up about 80% of those with at-risk drinking and 90% of those with an alcohol use disorder. So after that, of course, there's additional questions that a physician or nurse practitioner would need to ask to sort out how the severity of the problem and what type of intervention this patient needs, a brief intervention or a more intensive ongoing um, intervention. But that's a great first step. It's really simple. It's easy to integrate into, you know, a new patient assessment or into a annual health exam. That's a great idea, especially since, as you said, so many clinicians don't pick up alcohol use in their patients. So is there anything else that you'd like to add? I think the only other thing that I would like to add is about a new model of treatment that is getting a lot of attention, which is the management of alcohol use disorders and addictions in general in primary care settings. So there was a lot of emphasis in the past for patients with more severe alcohol problems to refer them to specialized treatment. However, the problem with that was a lot of patients weren't either being referred or they were um, not showing up for their appointments, they had high dropout rates. So researchers started to look at treatment in primary care settings. And there were several large studies done comparing specialized care to primary care and didn't find any difference between the two treatment settings. So the name for this model is the medical management model, the primary care medical management model. And physicians provide brief ongoing counseling sessions, medications, and connections to other resources. And they've actually compared it in real-world settings where patients were getting this type of care from their own primary care providers at their own primary care clinic. And there it actually seemed to outperform specialized care, mostly because of increased retention and treatment in primary care settings. Which again, as you said, from a cost perspective, would obviously be considerably cheaper than a lot of the other programs. Yeah. And patients prefer it. They're comfortable with their primary care provider. They have a strong, often have a strong therapeutic alliance with them. The clinics are typically closer to where they live, so it's less expensive. And overall, yeah, it seems to be more effective. I, I'm sure that there still is a, a need for those specific sort of residential or more intensive programs for some patients. But it sounds like a lot of patients who are at risk or who may have some of these alcohol use disorders may be able to be adequately treated in primary care, which is great. Yes, yes, we're very excited about that. 
So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Spitoff, to talk about your commentary today. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Dr. Cheryl Spithoff, addiction medicine specialist and family physician at Women's College Hospital in Toronto. To read her commentary, visit cmaj.ca.